0: I love that song. I think I love it so much because it uh, kind of makes me think about the church. Amen comes from Hebrew. It's it's an acclamation of agreement. (laughs) I don't know. So much division and partisanship. And in the church, there is this uh, beautiful oneness created by Christ, this uh, Amen. Well, it's first fruits, And this month, we're focusing on something that should be true of our lives all the time. But we need reminders. We need to stop and take inventory and think about things that are important. And Firstfruits is all about giving God our first and our best. And this month, as we think about our first and best, I wanted us to think about Acts some more. But Acts 29, and I guess I learned this last week that some of you were perplexed because you, were, you thought your Bibles were defective that they didn't have an Acts 29 but now we know Acts 29 is about writing the next chapter and that really is a way in which we as God's people the church can write the next chapter we're supposed to write the next chapter we are the continuation of Acts and when we were uh, last in Acts and not Acts 29, we were in chapter 19, Paul had come to Ephesus, this grand, great city. It was the third largest in the Roman Empire behind Alexandria and Rome itself. Um, Think, you know, New York or Paris or France. I mean, it's a a major, major city. And this week I want us to go to his letter of Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus for some three years. But not just in that city, but in the environs. And the letter that is titled or labeled Ephesus is, of course, to that church, but most scholars believe it was a circular. That is, that it was circulated not only uh, amongst the churches in Ephesus, but the churches in the surrounding areas And last week we looked at the mission, but I thought this week we would look at the letter of Paul to Ephesus and the churches of that Lycus Valley. Uh, Some of you know them if you think of the the churches of Revelation. Those are all churches in that area. And it it has a lot to say about the church. Last week we looked at the mission. Uh, This week we want to look at the church. Um, In the purpose-driven life... One of our purposes is mission. Our mission that we looked at last week is to those who don't know Jesus Christ. That's our mission. Our purpose is to be Christ to the world, to carry Him to unbelievers. But our ministry, your ministry, is to believers. And that's what we want to look at as we think about the church this morning. So I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, the whole latter is immersed in the church. But as uh, this church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, Paul has this great truth to declare. Verse 11, therefore, and in the first ten verses that make up that therefore, he's talked about what Christ has done for us, how alienated we were, how separated, estranged. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision. By the so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit, to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole building Being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a a dwelling of God in the Spirit. After 20 years, marooned, on a deserted island the sole inhabitant is rescued. His rescuer finds this castaway and he has built several imposing structures. Wow, the rescuer says, what's that beautiful stone building overlooking the bay? My home says the castaway. And what's that building over there with the spires? My church, says the castaway. But wait, the rescuer says, that building over there with the bell tower, what's that? That's the church I used to belong to. I chuckle at that joke every time. I guess he didn't like the preaching. (laughs) You know, it gets even funnier. He thought the church was a building. But the church is not a building. Picture people, Christ's people, Jesus people, that's the church. The people who belong to Jesus, his band of people, his community, his company of committed followers, his congregation, Combined in Him, and endowed with His Spirit. That's the church. The church. That church. Any church. This church is great, if it's great. Not because of its size. but our devotion to Christ. Not because of its wealth, but our generosity, giving, and sacrifice. Not because of its buildings, but our faith, sincerity, and honesty. Not because of its weakness in the flesh, but its power in the Spirit. Not because of its sin, but our forgiveness. Not because of its might, but our mercy, meekness, and gentleness. Not because of its individuals, but because of our unity, our community in Christ. Not because of what the church isn't, but because of what the church is, our calling. That's the vision I have of the church. It's not a building. But that vision wasn't always my vision of the church. I was raised in the church. My mother played the organ and the piano. My dad was a custodian. I remember every Saturday, going to church with them, and I would ramp, run all over the place. It was a huge, it was, you know, stained glass windows, and they had very special chairs for the dignitaries of the church to sit in, and, and I used to sneak up there and sit in those chairs. <laughs> and there was one really big one right in the middle, more ornate, larger, and I thought that's where God sat. So I never sat in that chair. I still have one of those chairs. One was given to me many, many years hence, and I treasure it. But I ran from the church, like the prodigal son. And I think that's a very complex thing, but it was all about me. And when it's all about me, then I, I found fault in others. That always seems to justify me doing my thing, going my way, turning my back on things. So in my teens, I ran from the church, but just before I was uh, 20, uh, I'd kind of run out of rope And then things about Jesus Christ and who He really was started uh, coming back to me. Things my mother had told me. Things that were genuine in the church. It was like all the little grievances and disgusts and peculiarities about people and stuff seemed to fall away. I found the world a very cold place. And by contrast, I started to see again things in the church and in the church I started to see things that were bona fide about Christ and particularly in my mother as you've perhaps heard me say before that my mother was very instrumental. My dad divorced her, left her, she got brain cancer, um, fought with that, it metastasized, there was nothing that they could do. But through all of that and before she died I saw more and more as the world was kind of taken away all the things of the world were stripped from her I saw the I saw Christ even more powerful and saw her faith and so I came back to Christ I made that decision alone without anybody's help it was kind of a long, drawn-out process, but that's where I ended up turning my life entirely over to Christ. He was now my Lord. And, I mean, it was just every moment of my day was, was how can I do this by faith, Lord? I really didn't know that much, but I knew Jesus, and, and that's how it began. But when I came to Christ turning to him didn't mean turning to the church in fact i wanted to stay away from the church i didn't at that time in my life have anything in common with the church in fact and many of you know this it's kind of old stuff but the long hair the earring the beard i was so anti establishment and i didn't you know i didn't have anything to wear to church and i thought people in church were you know people who need crutches and you know all that all the stereotypes. And when I was invited, I didn't want to go, and so I made nice excuses because I didn't want to be unloving. But I was all about Jesus, and I don't think the Lord spoke to me, but I do think God prompts us. And if I were to put His prompting into words, it's just this clear. He said to me, He communicated to me, He impressed upon me that if I loved Him, I couldn't reject His people. It was just as plain as that. You can't follow me and call me Lord and not care about the people that I died for. You can't disassociate yourself or not be a part of my church. It's my church, not yours. It's not the world's. It belongs to me. I love it, and you have to love it too." And I thought to myself, I don't have anything in common with these folks, and I think that they've got this wrong and that wrong. And then I realized that God was saying, prompting me to get in there And be a part of the solution and not the problem. To start being an example of, you know, I thought I had this pristine relationship with Jesus Christ. It was just me and Jesus, you know? Something pure, something real, something that I wasn't going to have tarnished. And the impression that the Lord was giving me was, well, so get in there and be me with my people. And that's really what it's been about ever since. And I, maybe, you know, being committed, accountable, being a member, sometimes we, we lose sight of what it's really all about. This thing called church. And I suppose maybe you're, you're saying, well, now I know why you're a pastor. No, I never wanted to be a pastor. But if you do this thing called church, if you quit going to church and realize you are the church, if you quit looking over at the church and and realize that you are the church, then we'll start writing the next chapter in a very real way. It doesn't mean you'll become a pastor. But you know, nothing's changed for me. It's still about walking with Jesus and trying to be an example of what He urges me and prompts me and calls me and you to do. And that's really what it's all about. We write the next chapter together. Oh, can you put that back up for me? Did I get it? There we go. We write the next chapter together. That's really what it's about. That's what is being said in Ephesians chapter 2. Not two, but one. In fact, his death was to accomplish that. And even though there were these things, these legal things, you remember what he said, these legal things have been removed. It's all been done in Jesus Christ. In fact, in verses 19 through 22, when we think about it, he calls us the household of God. And we belong to that household, the church. In verses 19, 20 through 22, he says, God's people and members of God's household. That's, that's you and that's me. That's, that's our title. That's our identity. God's people and God's household. I thought it was so profound back in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. There are two great churches in the book of Acts, and there were other great churches, I'm sure, but Luke obviously emphasizes Jerusalem because that's where it all began and continued to to emanate out from Jerusalem, but also Antioch because that's where the first Gentiles really started. I mean, we're told in that chapter, And not directly from Jerusalem. You recall, they sent Barnabas. And Barnabas, when he saw what God was doing, he he rejoiced because of the grace that he saw there. And Jews and Gentiles, and and it's so profound. Think about this just a moment. Jews and Gentiles. that, That represents everybody. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Jews and Gentiles are not called Jews and Gentiles. They're not called Presbyterians or Methodists or Baptists or Catholics or Methodists. They're not called first or second or true believing or the real light group. They're first called Christians. You know why that is? Because Jews and Gentiles were known for talking about Jesus, about Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. So, outsiders called them Christians. They had to come up with a new kind of ethnological term. To identify this distinct group who was not partitioned or dissected or divided by, you know, being a Jew or being a Gentile or being a Presbyterian or Baptist, but Christians. The household of God, God's people, founded on the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. And He says in verse 22 In Him, You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. You too. That resonates even to the 21st century. Just as those people reading that letter realized that they too were a part of what Paul was speaking about. So we too are a part of this thing. This local manifestation, we here today are a part of something grander. And Jesus is called the cornerstone. When we were in Ecuador working at the Happiness Foundation in 2005, we started a building, and what impressed me. Was uh, We called him the maestro. He was a local. And he took so much time to set the cornerstone. Because everything in that building was going to be plumbed and aligned with the cornerstone. If the cornerstone was off, the whole building would be out of whack. And of course, it wouldn't be strong. It would eventually be very weak. And there would be stressors. And they would break. And it would fall in. But when the cornerstone is solid and sound, then the building is strong. That's why Jesus must always be the cornerstone. Anything else in our lives is building with really a long-range trajectory of becoming brittle and stressed and broken. We belong to his household, the church. The household was this marvelous thing. The household was made up in that time, especially the Roman household, which I think his readers in Ephesus would grasp. The household was brought together by the head of the household. But it was very diverse. It was not just a biological entity. There were... And I I know we find this repugnant, it's a different world, but there were slaves in a household. There were adoptees. There were many members of a household. It was a very diverse group, but it was a unity and it was a oneness by the household head. We are that household. And you can see how diverse it is even in the way he talks about it in this second chapter. But we belong not only to his household, his bride. This is the way the Bible talks. This is the way the New Testament talks. This is the way the Apostle Paul or Peter and others talk about the church, not as a building, but as a household, a family. A family brought together by the head. This is the way they talk about it a body. Turn over a page or two, depending on how small the print is, in your, to chapter 5, verses 21 and following. I just want to pick up in verse 23. No, just notice these words. Christ is the head of the church, His body, of which He is the Saviour. Verse 24, look at these words, "...the church submits to Christ in everything." Look at verse 25, "...Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her, that is the church, by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to Himself, radiant without stain, wrinkle, or blemish, but holy and blameless." Verse 29, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. Verse 30, we are members of his body. And then in verse 31, citing Genesis chapter 224, these words, for this reason the two become one flesh. What's the reason that two become one flesh? To say, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We think about marriage that way, but we don't think about the church that way. And yet, Paul goes on to say in verse 32, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. You thought it was all about marriage. This beautiful institution. This becoming one, this creating a oneness, a family. And Paul says, no, I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about the church. This makes, this makes my body tingle. It makes it electric. It makes it shiver. Maybe it's the awe of it. Maybe it's the embarrassment of it. That we don't think about the church this way. And we think about that church down the road or that church across town, and we feel like they're in another church. So it's okay to badmouth those people. By the way, I'm not addressing any issue. I just know that's human behavior. I know we. I know I've done it, and it's not right. It's not bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's not my bride when I'm talking about someone in that way. Not just within our own group, within our own family, within our own church. It's it's wrong then too. This is the body and Bride of Christ. This reveals how much Jesus loves the church. In fact, the church is to be a beautiful model of marriage. When was the last time you were inspired to marriage by the church? I I can put the words in your mouth. Never. I understand that. But we can do something about it. We can be different. We can aspire to these things. We, one of us, two of us, three of us, twenty of us can keep this in mind. And be loving in the face of unkindness. We can be Christ-like in the face of wrong. We can do that through faith, through trust through dependence on Him. We can resolve differences between us. This is a perfect time to talk about these things, because I don't know of anything like this going on. But if it is, then, then the, the Spirit's moving in your midst on this issue. But I'm not target practicing at all here. I just know this. this is we could preach this any day, every day, and it would be relevant. It makes me tremble. Because I'm just as much the target of the Spirit's work in my life as yours. It reveals God's love for the church and that it involves commitment and responsibility. It reveals that the two become one flesh. That there is an indissoluble oneness between loving Christ and loving His church. And it reveals that this is a profound mystery. And the last word that... in. This letter is used of the church, not building, but family, household, not building, but bride, not building, but body. Do you know that the Holy Spirit creates the church? You are brought into the church when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And that comes in, the Spirit comes into your life when you profess and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and belong to Him. So in that sense, there's a church that we can't see, made up of all true believers, those who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. But the body, and to be a member of the body, you can only, you can only see that locally. It can only be lived out, in practice, locally. That's why there's a church by a name over there and a church by a name over there and we're Grace Community Church. Do I wish it were all one big church? I do. If that were functional. I just wish the church were that unified that people would not spout stereotypes about the church and see the true church because it would move them. No one belongs to the household of God, the body, the Bride of Christ, unless one belongs to the local church. Otherwise, the Bride of Christ is just a casual date. Otherwise, the household of God is just a sleepover. Otherwise, the body of Christ is made of detachable prosthesis parts, and not something organic and genuine. You and I need to be part of the body of Christ. When I was a kid, I, I saw the movie Spartacus, and I kind of it's been in my head ever since over the years. Now that I'm grown up, I've read a lot about Spartacus, about the slave revolt against Rome, so many years before Christ. Spartacus had a general of sorts. His right-hand man, his name was Crixus. And Crixus says, I go where I go. No man tells Crixus what to do anymore. Finally, he, you see, has rebelled. He's a slave who has has been emancipated under Spartacus. But Spartacus calls for Crixus. I mean, really, when you think about this whole slave revolt... If all the slaves are just totally emancipated and do their own thing, there's no, there's no revolt. There's no more emancipation. Everybody just does their own thing and eventually it's squashed. And so Spartacus calls for Crixus to come and stand next to him. This is Crixus, the Gaul. Maybe the strongest man among us. Still, he's only one man. Spartacus hands Crixus a single arrow, saying, can you bend this? And Crixus not only bends it, he breaks it easily and throws it to the ground. Then Spartacus hands Crixus a stack of arrows that are bound together, saying, now all of these. Crixus takes the arrows in and is unable to break them, throwing the bundle to the ground in disgust. And Spartacus says, We are all like the arrows. Separately, we're weak, but together, we're invincible. Will you stand with me? Every one of us knows in our heart of hearts that we're invincible because of Jesus Christ. And it's hard. We all do things, make, make mistakes, say things we shouldn't say. Some of us have scrawled boundaries on our life. I'll never do that. I'm never going there. I'm never trying that. Some of us that are older, well, that's for the younger. Or I've done my time, now it's for them to take over. And, you know, there's all kinds of... But in Christ if we're to really be the church, it begins right there in our personal relationship with Him. That each of us should be willing to step outside of our comfort zone because He's drawing us out. Drawing us out where we cannot stand in our own strength or to do something that we could do in our own strength, but only in His strength. And this morning, it, it might be about a disposition An attitude. It might be about something you've done that's really wrong. You've injured somebody. You've been entirely self-absorbed and selfish. And you know you need to face that. Admit it. Ask forgiveness for it. Make it right. It might be that there's someone in your life that you hold a grudge against. That you hate. That you are being compelled by the Spirit to go to and make things right. I don't have to spell everything out. The Spirit is nudging you. I just want you to know that I'm human enough to know from my own experience that these are the kinds of challenges that we face as believers. But as we face them together and as we face them one by one within the greater body of Christ, we grow together and we become strong in Christ. It's together that we write the next chapter. And some of it calls for individual tasks that will bring us closer together. And unite us as the true body, as the true household, as the true bride of Christ. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are all humbled before us by these beautiful ideals that we know are not just castles built on a hill, but they are in fact ideals written with your blood and realized through your Spirit. So move in us. May we give you that permission today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we close, as the music plays, I'm going to be up here, elders and deacons, uh, elders and pastoral staff and others will join me. If you'd like to pray before you leave about something personal, maybe you want to pray for someone else. Pray for our church. Pray for another church. But if you'd like to pray with someone Pray about something God's put on your heart. We invite you to come. God bless you. Make it a great day.